Good morning once again. So, um, as I'm sure you have already determined, Pastor Ron and Miss Tammy are out of town celebrating their anniversary. So you guys are stuck with me this morning. I apologize up front, but we'll, we'll do the best we can to have a good time. Um, let's start with a short word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for our time, Lord. Thank you for the time that you've given us. I love what, what Mr. Hat was just saying about how probably our most precious commodity is our time. It's the one thing that we're only given a certain amount of and we can never get any more. Once it's gone, it's gone. Um, and we just appreciate all of the time that you give us, Lord, and we appreciate the time we get to spend together with our brothers and sisters talking about you and, and learning more about you and growing in you, Father, and just worshiping you. Um, you are worth all of our time, certainly, Lord. And we just ask you to bless this time here this morning. Help us, Father. Help me to, to deliver the, the word that you would have me to deliver this morning. Help your people to receive it, Father. And um, we just pray that this all be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I wanted to start this morning. By the way, it's so good to see you guys here this morning. I love it. I'm, I hadn't I hadn't seen you guys in a while, and, and it reminds me of being in teen class. You know, that's you guys in, in teen class here again. So you guys are going to get to enjoy teen class this morning. I hope you enjoy it. Somebody gave me a good piece of advice this morning. I loved it. I thought it was really, really good advice. He said, who's speaking this morning? I said, yeah. He said, well, make it quick. <laughs> I said, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. That's good advice. Either be good or be short, you know, one or the other. Um, so I wanted to start by asking you guys a question this morning. I want you to think about this a little bit. Have you ever had a situation dealing with a person where you really feel like you struggle forgiving that person? I mean, something bad. Now, and maybe nothing really, really super bad has happened in your life, and I certainly hope it has not, but think about if somebody you love dearly, like a child or something like that, I'm not trying to be morbid, but think about if somebody you really, really love dearly was hurt, killed, something really, really bad happened, how tough would it be to forgive that person? I watched a little clip, a little piece of video recently. Um, in fact, I saw two recently, and I might get them a little mixed up, but it involved, uh, there was a court setting, I believe it was a sentencing of a person that had been convicted of several murders, and there was no doubt the person did it. They, they confessed eventually, admitted to everything, gave details, and you know how they do a lot of times at these sentencing hearings. In fact, this one in particular was a guy named Dennis Rader if you've ever heard of him, he was a notorious serial killer that did unspeakable things to a number of people. And they were having his sentencing hearing, and they were allowing families of the victim to stand up and say something. They want to give people their opportunity in court. This person has transgressed in a grievous way against this family. And the victim's not there anymore to speak for themselves, so they'll allow a family member to stand up and say something in court before the judge gives sentence. They want to give them their, their moment. And so they have these victims. 
family member standing up, and it's just heartbreaking, man. It's just heartbreaking. I can't imagine being in that place, you know. Gosh, it's, it's awful. And so they're pouring out their hearts, and they're talking about how hurt they are, how devastated, how their family will never be the same again because of what this person did. And some of them are addressing the guy directly. Do you know what you've done to me? Do you know what you've done to my family? And trying to express all of this hurt and anger and perfectly understandable. I just can't imagine being in that situation. But so this is going on. And one guy stood up, an older gentleman, and he said, you're going to hear something different from me this morning. All these things are true. You took someone from me that meant the world to me and broke my heart. But my God tells me that I have to forgive you. So what I want to say today is you are forgiven, sir. And this cold-hearted, cold-blooded serial killer who had taken the lives of numerous people mercilessly, turned and looked at the man and started weeping there in the courtroom. Tears start flowing down his face. I don't know if that man had ever cried about anything in his life, but that's the power of forgiveness. It is a powerful, powerful thing. And when I'm in the situation and somebody has done something to me, I understand how hard it is to forgive. I get it. When I hear people saying, I'll never forgive that person for what they did, I get it. I understand. But when I see something like that, I think, God knows what he's doing. Because there is nothing like that kind of power, the power of forgiveness that can move a person's heart, even a, a killer, a stone-cold killer, his heart can be affected by the power of forgiveness. So we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit this morning. I've been thinking about that a lot with this story. But I want to talk with you guys this morning about Jonah. Everybody knows the story of Jonah, right? Everybody knows about Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the big fish. You know, Scripture says it was a great fish. There's a Hebrew word for whale that was not used. It said great fish, so a lot of people say it definitely was not a whale. I don't know. Turns out there are two animals in the Mediterranean Sea that get big enough to potentially swallow a man whole. And as far as we know, there's only two. And we know that these two ex animals existed back in this time because we have other writings, people describing these animals. So they exist. One is a sperm whale. They get big enough. They get huge. They can be particularly aggressive and mean, although this thing didn't necessarily have to be mean or anything. But sperm whales have a, have a reputation. That's what the whalers used to go after a lot was some sperm whales. And they would come out with these stories sometimes. Moby Dick, he was a sperm whale. And that book was based on some supposedly true stories that people told about this whale that would come attack ships and ram them, sometimes sink these ships. So they got very, very big, very strong, powerful creatures and got big enough to swallow a man whole. The other is the great white shark. They actually get big enough, believe it or not, to swallow a man whole. Now, it's not typically what they do. It's not typically how they go about it. And I don't even want to talk about it, but it, they do get big enough. Uh, I believe I saw 
recently where like the world record beggar center, something like 27 feet tall. I mean, huge animal. And I wonder, did Jonah see that thing coming or, mm, I don't know. But, so that's the story. So let's talk just a little bit about Jonah. Um, there's not a lot in the Bible about Jonah other than in the book of Jonah. He was the son of Amittai, and he was from a place called Gath Hefer near Nazareth, very close to Nazareth, almost kind of like a subsidiary of, of Nazareth. And we have one other place in the Bible. He was, he was considered a prophet. He's considered one of the minor prophets, not because he was lesser, but just didn't have as much writing from him. And um, there's one other place where he prophesied. He prophesied he, he lived during the time of King Jeroboam II, who was an evil dude. The Bible says he was a wicked person. And Jonah prophesied that Jeroboam was going to recapture some of the northern territory of Israel, and, and he did. He um, won back this territory um, that I believe was later taken from him in a different battle. But anyway, but so Jonah prophesied rightly about that. And then we have the book of Jonah. Now, it's, it's kind of unusual because we have the books from a number of prophets, major and minor, and they're all about prophecies, but it's prophecies they're writing that God has given them about other people and other nations, about Israel, obviously, a lot about Israel and about Judah, but a lot about other nations as well. These prophets would prophesy about, you know, ungodly nations, nations that weren't considered part of God's people, but he would, they would prophesy about them and say, God's going to judge you. This is what's coming. God's going to do this. But Jonah's unusual because God came to Jonah and gave him word and said, you go to this place. It's not my people. It's a pagan, heathen nation. You go to them and give them my word. So it's, it's really unusual in that aspect. And so um, I think what we'll do is start by reading Jonah. And then I want to start stop and, and we'll go through some of this. But Jonah starts, as you know, get to the right place here, with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. That's how it starts. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. A response from a prophet, right? What in the world? He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps your, the God will give us a thought that we might not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, 
and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, to Jehovah, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Boy, is that a beginning to a story or what? So there's some interesting stuff going on in here. It starts, of course, with Jonah, who's a prophet. What do prophets do? They prophesy. The Lord speaks to them and says, go tell my people this, or go tell these people that are not my people this. He gives the prophet messages, and the prophet delivers the messages. That's what they do. So the Lord spoke to Jonah and said, I have a message for you. Go to Nineveh and give him a message. So what does Jonah do? He picks up and goes the opposite direction. Do we have the uh, slide with the map on it? I wanted to kind of show you guys. If you see Nineveh all the way to the right over there, it's that last yellow dot. Well, that if you follow the purple line backwards to that next yellow dot, that's approximately where Joppa is. Jonah was very close to Joppa, but between Joppa and Nineveh. So he literally went the opposite direction from where the Lord told him to go. And if you follow this long yellow line, that's approximately where we know Tarshish was somewhere. We don't know exactly where it was. Different people have some different ideas. But somewhere at the end of the Mediterranean Sea, basically as far as you could go, that's where Jonah was headed. What in the heck? God says, Jonah, go over there. You're a prophet. You're my prophet. You work for me. Go give these people a prophecy. Jonah said, no, and takes off going the other way. What's going on? Well, we find out later, but I'm going to let you in on it early. Jonah didn't like Nineveh. Jonah didn't like Nineveh a lot. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, he had good reason to not like Nineveh. A lot of people had good reason to not like Nineveh. Nineveh was a bad place. Nineveh was an Assyrian city, and the Assyrians were just vicious. They were rough. They were mighty warriors, and they were renowned for their fighting and for their conquering. And Nineveh was the capital. And Nineveh was renowned even above the Assyrians for their cruelty. They were fierce, vicious. They would go out and attack and conquer people, and they would capture prisoners of war and bring them back to Nineveh, and apparently just kind of for fun would 
torture them mercilessly. I mean do unspeakable things. And when I say unspeakable, they would do things I will not say in, in church in front of you guys. It was bad. They impaled people. They were known for that. Thousands of people. They would skin people alive. Unspeakable things. They would dismember. They would behead people. Beheading sounds like a mercy with these folks. They were awful. In fact, if you read the book of Nahum, <clears throat> well, yeah, let's go ahead and, and skip forward to that. Uh, Nahum is about the destruction that's coming on Nineveh. Now, it was about 100 years after the story of Jonah, but Nahum is speaking the word of God against Nineveh, and Nineveh was, was eventually overthrown. And Nahum called it the city of blood. Nahum 3.1 says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. In 3.19 it says, There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. He's saying, everybody that hears about your destruction is going to be happy about it. They're going to celebrate when you guys go down. Who has not seen your cruelty? Who has not felt your cruelty? That's what, what Nahum is saying. So, this is a bad place. And there was a lot of enmity between the Assyrians and Israel. They were a direct threat to Israel. And everybody knew it. Jonah certainly knew this. And Jonah wanted nothing more than to see that city destroyed and wiped off the face of the earth. Well, it's kind of interesting because God says, hey, Jonah, go tell Nineveh that I'm about to destroy them and wipe them off the face of the earth. And you would think Jonah would say, hot dog, man, I've been waiting for this. And take off to Nineveh. Ha <laughs> ha, it's coming now. Y'all about to get it. But that's not what Jonah did. Jonah turned around and went the other way. What's going on here? And later on in the, in the book, Jonah tells you directly. But I want you to think about something that God said in Jeremiah. And if you can't get back to post this, it's fine. I'll, I'll read it. But Jeremiah 18, verse 6 through 8, it says, O house of Israel, this is the Lord talking, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do. I think Jonah knew that. In fact, Jonah knew that he served a merciful God. Praise the Lord. We serve a merciful God. I'm telling you, there is no bigger example of his mercy than he who is standing before you today. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. All right? But Jonah didn't feel that way at this moment. Jonah's thinking, but God's merciful. I want these people destroyed. I don't want them forgiven. I want them destroyed. So Jonah turns around and goes the other way. So 
couple other interesting things in that first chapter that, that really jump out at me. The men on the boat were obviously pagan. These were not followers of God. It says they each cried out to their own God, and that's the way they would do. They, they didn't think anything about, I, my God is so-and-so. Who's your God? Well, my God is so-and-so. Oh, okay. Well, it's kind of almost like a horoscope or something, you know. They just chose these gods that were not gods at all, obviously. And so they're calling out. And they went and woke John up and said, call to your God. Maybe your God will hear and will help us out. And then they asked Jonah, who are you and where are you from and all this? And Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear Jehovah, the God who created the land and the sea. And that's what's going on right now. See, this storm wasn't just a little old storm. This was a bad storm. I think it's very reasonable to assume that the men running this boat were seasoned sailors. They knew what they were doing. They had been through a few storms before. The Mediterranean has storms. You wouldn't be a sailor for very long without encountering some kind of storm. These guys were panicking. They're throwing the stuff overboard to try and lighten the ship. That's a last-ditch effort. They're getting rid of their cargo, their food, whatever has some weight to it, to try and get the boat a little bit higher out of the water to keep the waves from washing over so easily. These guys were terrified, seasoned, sailors that knew how to get through a storm they were terrified but this wasn't any natural storm this was a supernatural storm the scripture says God sent the wind this came from God this wasn't mother nature just whipping up some regular old typhoon God sent this storm and these men were terrified and when Jonah said I fear the Lord Jehovah the one who created the land and the sea. And I'm running from him, trying to escape his presence. And the men were afraid. They were like, oh my goodness, this, is, this must be the Lord. He did this? And it says they feared Jehovah. That's crazy. They start praying to Jehovah as they chunk him overboard. Please don't hold this against us. We're doing what he's telling us to do. We don't want to be guilty of innocent blood. And then the sea calms down. And it said they feared Jehovah and they started making sacrifices to the Lord and making vows to the Lord. These people got saved. These are pagans. One question that always came to me as I read this story, even as a kid, one thing I always, it's kind of stuck out to me and I thought about it. I'm weird like this. Why did Jonah say, you guys throw me overboard. Why didn't Jonah just say, I'll take care of it, and just go jump overboard? He could have said, y'all just stand. Let me get a running start. I'll jump overboard into the sea, and everything will be fine. I always wondered about that. I don't know, but I got a suspicion. I'm going to tell you all my theory. This is what I think happened. See, the sailors came to Jonah and said, what should we do? Jonah said, well, throw me overboard and everything will be all right. The sailors obviously didn't want to throw him overboard, right? They were even praying to God, please don't hold us against us. They didn't want to throw him overboard. So the sailors were like, well, why don't you just jump? Jonah said something like this. Well, see, the thing is, I can't swim. And furthermore, I'm scared of the ocean. I saw a shark attack a seal one time when I was a little boy, and I am terrified of sharks and I'm terrified of the ocean 
and I can't swim, y'all going to have to throw me in there. Now, it's going to probably take about four, maybe five of you. I'm sure y'all can do it if y'all band together. But it's going to be tough. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you right now, straight up, I'm a biter. So it's going to be real bad for one of you. But I'm sure y'all can do it. And then the man said, throw some more stuff overboard and row hard, boys, row hard. Get us out of here. I don't know. That's silly, I guess. But I've thought about that many times. Why didn't he just offer, you know, to just jump off the boat? That would have been a tough thing to do. But one way or the other, they, uh, they chunk Jonah over the side, and the sea calms down immediately, and everything's fine for the sailors. But then God caused this giant fish to come swallow Jonah. He was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. And I don't know about the breathing thing. I don't know what to tell you other than he's God and he can do whatever he wants to do. People always, you know, rightly think, well, how could you breathe in the belly of a fish who's underwater? I don't know. I don't know. God's a miracle worker. He can do things like that. But here the story really starts to turn because Jonah is in the belly of this fish and he starts praying. Now, I don't know what it's like to be in the belly of a fish, but I've done a lot of fishing and I've cleaned a lot of fish. And I can tell you from experience, firsthand knowledge, the inside of a fish's stomach is nasty, is gross. Ain't no telling what you liable to find. And the bigger the fish the bigger the surprises that come out of their stomach. And it's just nasty, all right? Jonah was in there, and I'm assuming it was a typical old fish's belly full of nastiness. And I know it was pitch black dark. There wasn't any way to have any light. I know it's slimy and smelly, and there's bones and stuff poking. I, ugh. All right, this is, this is bad. And he's in there for three days. All right. So he starts to pray. He's that smart anyway. Jonah 2 starts like this. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, I'll stop right there. It's kind of interesting. Jonah doesn't exactly apologize. He doesn't say, God, I'm so sorry. Please help me. It sounds like Jonah is already saying, You've already saved my life. Jonah was drowning. He's sinking down in the sea, and he's kind of describing this. The seaweeds were wrapped around my head. It was over. I was done. And you saved me by sending a giant fish to swallow him, right? But here he is. He's still alive. And Jonah is saying, you are God, and you have control. And I gave vows that I would serve you, and I'll do it. I'll, I'll live up to my vows. I'll do the things I said I would do. 
And at the very end, Jonah 2, 9, he says, But with the voice of thanksgiving, we'll sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, another kind of interesting question is, how far up onto the dry land was that fish able to get or how far did it project Jonah when it vomited him? So I don't know. There's some interesting things in there to think about. And here's another fascinating thing to think about. After Jonah had been in the belly of this fish for three days, what do you think he looked like? Because a lot of the experts out there say that in that amount of time, the digestive juices in that fish's stomach would bleach you white. I don't mean white like I'm white. I mean like a T-shirt, like white, like his hair and his skin. He looked like a dead man. And he's got nasty slime and stuff all over him, seaweed hanging from his ears, and he smells like, Mm. like he just crawled out of the garbage. This dude was a sight, right? Makes sense to me. So, <laughs> so then I love this. Jonah 3.1 starts like this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. What a difference. What a difference. It's almost exact same wording in the beginning of chapter 3 as it is in the beginning of chapter 1. Chapter 1 says the same thing. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And then it says, So Jonah got up and went the other way, went to Joppa. Very different now. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. It was said to take three days to walk from one side of the the whole city to the other. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, as far as we know, that's all he said. We don't know. It could be he said other things. The Bible just didn't include that. But all we know that he said was yet 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown. And was just repeating this message. Yet 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown. And what do you think happened in this evil city full of wickedness and violence and bloodshed? And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. 
Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What do you think the merciful God did at this point? Jonah 3.10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Wow. Now, in chapter 4, a number is given, we'll see in just a second, of 120,000 people. But God said there's 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, some think that he's just saying they just were just kind of ignorant. They didn't know the ways of God. They hadn't been exposed to the teachings. And that's kind of what it's saying, that they just, they just didn't know a lot. But a lot of people think, and this is the way I kind of lean, that God was talking about children. That there's 120,000 children so young that they don't yet know their right hand from their left. We'll talk about that a little further in just a minute. And if that's the case, then this city would have contained at least around 600,000 people. This was a great city, especially at that time. It was huge. There was nothing else like it. Three days to walk from one side to the other. We figure about 60 miles across this great city. And possibly at least 600,000 people. And according to the scripture, they turned to God at the word of this smelly, bleached out, seaweed-covered prophet. And all he said, as far as we know, was yet 40 days and this city will be overturned. It's also kind of interesting, the word he uses there that the scripture records in the, in the Greek for overturn means literally to turn over. And it could certainly mean overthrown, as in conquered or something like that. But it can also mean changed, like converted. Like, this is what you look like now. God's about to do something. And, you know, that happened right then. Apparently, God changed the hearts of the people of that city right then. What an incredible thing for the king to hear about what's going on and to go put on his sackcloth and sit in ashes. This is a humiliating act. And to tell everybody in that city, get on sackcloth. Even put it on your animals and don't eat anything and don't feed your animals anything we're fasting because we're in trouble god has spoken to us and we got to do something about it so how do you think jonah felt he's a prophet he's a preacher i mean you could call him a missionary right missionaries live to see people get saved they love that Right? They go somewhere and preach and people get saved. Man, they're calling home. You know, this is so awesome. These people got saved. Here's the most wicked bunch of people anybody knew of. What preacher wouldn't go there and preach a message and see people getting saved and come running home? Well, y'all not going to believe this. Listen, you know that wicked bunch, these mean people that kill all people and do all this awful stuff? They got saved legitimately. They turned to God. Yeah, that's not what happened. That's not what Jonah did. It's, it's fascinating that this is a, a 
picture of salvation, of the salvation yet to come through Jesus Christ. It's fascinating to me that Jesus refers back to Jonah. And he uses this as an example. In Matthew 12, 38 and 40 through 42, Jesus talks about this. This is found in two different places, Matthew and in Luke, I believe it is in the scripture. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For behold, she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus points right back to the story of Jonah that they all were familiar with. Y'all looking for a sign. Y'all keep wanting a sign. How many miracles had he performed at this point? But here they are. Give us a sign. Give us a sign that you're who you say you are. He says you're evil and adulterous. Seeking for signs, sign after sign after sign. And I'm telling you, no sign will be given to you except Jonah the prophet. And just as he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Y'all remember the story about Lazarus the beggar? Not Lazarus, the one that Jesus raised from the dead, but the beggar that was at the rich man's gate, right? And, and begging for food, scraps of food, and he was in bad shape, dogs coming up, licking his wounds and all that kind of stuff. And he died, and he was carried to Abraham's bosom. And then the rich man died, and the rich man was in hell. And it says, in Hades, in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham and Lazarus. He said, Abraham, send Lazarus with just a drop of water to touch my tongue. Y'all remember? He said, can't do it. There's a big chasm between us. There's a big gulf fixed between us. Can't can't do it. And he says, well, send him back to talk to my brothers and tell my brothers. I got, I can't remember, was it five brothers? And I don't want them to come here. This is awful. Send him back. And Abraham said, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. He said, yeah, but no, they don't believe Moses and the prophets. But if somebody came back from the dead, they would believe. And what did Abraham say? If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, then they won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. Which is exactly what our Savior did. And he was right. Still didn't believe. You can have a fish swallow a man. Keep him for three days and vomit him up on land. And there's still people that won't believe. You can have the Savior of the world descend from heaven and perform miracle after miracle and then be crucified, killed, and put in a tomb for three days. And raised from the dead. And there's still people 
still won't believe. So thankful that we serve a merciful God. His mercy never ends. And I sure pray that no one within the sound of my voice does not take advantage of the mercy of God and does not believe the word that he's already sent. I hope there's no one listening to me that's waiting for that sign. Because according to what I read, it's probably not coming. We've got the Bible. We've got his word. We've got his message. We've got countless miracles that have gone before. He's shown who he is time and time again. And if that's not enough for you, I hate to tell you what the fate is according to what I read. There's this awesome passage that you find in the Bible. The first time I, I see it is in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, 6. It says, the Lord passed before him. It's talking about Moses. The Lord, Jehovah, passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Or in other words, Jehovah, Jehovah, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's such a cool description of God. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you'll find this pretty much exact same phrase used in Numbers 14, 18, used in Nehemiah 9, 17, used in Psalms 86, 15, Psalms 103, 8, Psalms 145, 8, and Joel 2, 13. And then we see it one more time here in Jonah 4. I'm going to read some of this to you. So God relented of his disaster that he had proclaimed. Jonah 4.1 starts, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a God, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, does that sound like something to be mad about? Jonah was mad about it. He was exceedingly angry about the fact that our God is so merciful. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah didn't answer that. But Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He's still hopeful that maybe their turning to God was just a temporary thing and they're going to turn back and God's going to come down and smite that whole place. I'm going to sit here and watch it. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose... God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked again that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you well, do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. 
And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What an answer. God's pointing out to Jonah his, his problem, his issue. God knows how to speak right to your heart and to my heart. See what's going on inside and reveal it to you. And God's saying, here you all upset because a plant that you didn't have anything to do with grew up and died. And you think something's wrong with me because I have pity for an entire nation. And this is one of the reasons why I think that 120,000 was referring to children and not to a total population. I don't know, but that's just my opinion. I think God's kind of saying, Jonah, there's 120,000 kids in this city that you want to see destroyed. Can you not even find it in your heart to have some pity for these innocent children? How about the animals, Jonah? There's many animals in this city. Should I just kill all the animals? This is a beautiful picture of God to me. You know, we often think that well, he cares about us, but he just doesn't really care about the animals. There's no big deal to him. But here he's saying, there's animals there. Why should all those animals be destroyed? If these people want to turn and repent, then it's okay for me to have pity on them. So this story it's, it's a number of things. I think it's really a prophetic kind of vision of Jesus and salvation, him coming as Savior, preaching the word of repentance, turning to God, him being crucified and being in the heart of the earth for three days as John was in the belly of well for three days. I definitely think it's kind of a picture of that. We see the salvation of Gentiles. We see the sailors. Pagans worshiping their own gods, turning like that to Jehovah, making vows to Jehovah. We see the people of Nineveh like that, turning from their gods and their wicked ways. By the way, do y'all know who the chief god? This is so cool. Y'all know who the, like the chief god of Nineveh was? The god that they were known for worshiping. They were considered the central place of worship for this god. It's a god called Dagon or Dagon. I'm not sure exactly how it's supposed to be pronounced. He was a fish god. He was like half fish and half man. He had like the head of a fish and the body of a man. And he was from the sea. You think God knows what he's doing? None of this surprised him. God wasn't sitting there going, Jonah, come on, man. Why, golly, just do what I want you to do. Why are you running? He didn't. He wasn't surprised by any of this. God's up there watching. Yeah, he's going to turn around just like get on the boat. Mm-hmm. Here comes a storm, nasty fight. He loses, gets chunked into the ocean. Now, watch what happens next. You're going to love this part, Jonah. And then Jonah has a fish spew this man back up on the land. And I think people saw it. And I think word started to spread. Y'all got to see this fella. He was spit out of a fish up on the dry land. We saw it happen. Look at him. He's bleached white. He's got nasty stuff all over him. He looks like he's part fish. And he goes to the city 
that worships the fish god Dagon and says, repent, because the Lord is coming to wipe this place out. And like that, they repent. How cool is God? How cool is God? He knows what he's doing. Well, I'm going to pray and close this. Thank you guys so much. And uh, we'll, we'll play one more song and, and get you guys out of here. If, um, if there's anybody listening to me today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I, I pray that you would do something about that. I pray that you would get into your Bible. I pray that you would talk to him. I want to stand here and tell you about the goodness of God because he is a good God and I've talked about his mercy and his love and his compassion and those things are exceedingly abundantly true but he is also a God of judgment and I want you to know that it is in your best interest to do everything within your power to make sure that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ not just because He's an exceedingly good God, and it is a pleasure to know Him and to serve Him. But because He is a God of judgment. And one day, every single one of us is going to stand before Him and be a judge and be judged according to our works. And I'm going to have to stand before Him a guilty man. There's no question of my guilt. And according to the Scripture, there's no question of your guilt. And there is only one hope for any of us on that day when we stand before the Lord and that's to be able to say yeah I'm guilty but Jesus Christ paid the penalty for me Jesus Christ took my place he took my punishment he took my shame he took my guilt he took my sin and he nailed it to the cross and he is my Lord and my Savior that's the only hope any of us have he's the only thing standing between me and you and an eternity in the lake of fire God's serious I've heard Pastor Ron say this I love it God's not playing he is a kind God and a merciful God and a forgiving God thank you Jesus but he is a serious God and a God of judgment and there's going to be a penalty to be paid for our sins and the, the thing is Jesus already paid it for you you don't have to pay it Jesus already took that penalty for you give your heart to Jesus call out to him cry out to him beg and plead whatever you got to do get on your face cry out to God and beg him to save you Scripture says, if you ask, you'll be given. If you knock, it'll be opened. So I'm begging you to ask. I'm begging you to knock. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness and your love and your mercy. Thank you so much for your people. So much, thank you so much for these times we get to spend together. And we just ask that you would bless this time together. May it be fruitful, Father. May we learn from it and grow from it. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.